Nehemiah chapter 9. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter of the day in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Bani, Kadmar, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Sherebiah, sorry, Bani, and Kanani. They cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmal, Bani, Habaniah, Sherebiah, Hadiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depth like a stone into mighty waters. By day, you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down to Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. 
Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the skies, and you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands, along with their kings and the people of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers, who rescued them from the hands of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn, back, to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which you said the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention, so you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests and our ancestors did not follow the law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you'd warned them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land that you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could eat its fruit and other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's great to see you. I'm Sam, one of the team here. Would you pray with me as we start? Heavenly Father, would you breathe the breath of your life by your spirit into the words that I speak? 
May we hear what you have to say to us this morning. Amen. What do you do when you're in great distress? I'll tell you my sort of go-to strategy. I probably want to put my head in the sand and uh, that looks like putting my running shoes on, heading outside, hitting the pavement or um, maybe going to the pool and thrashing out some lengths. Or on the flip side, I'll just bury my head in the pillow and have a good long nap. But what do you do when things are not quite going your way, when things are falling apart? What's your strategy? Panic? Retail therapy? Planning the next trip? Well, our passage this morning that we've just heard read ends with that desperate cry. We are in great distress. So we're going to uncover what lay behind the Israelites' distress and ours and discover three down-to-earth lessons from Ezra's prayer. What's behind their great distress? Well, if you've been following our series, you'll know that the book, Nehemiah, begins with Nehemiah hearing how Jerusalem was in tatters. The report comes regarding the Jews who escaped and had survived the exile. The remnant there in the province is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So there was great distress at the start. Nehemiah was moved to mourn and grieve and resolved to rebuild the wall. And rebuild the wall he did in an astonishing 52 days. But God had a greater restoration in mind. Re-establishing the city walls was just the beginning. God had a deeper work in store, one that addressed the very reason that the, the city had been ransacked and its population carried off. He didn't just want the walls to go back up, he wanted his people to return to him. There's distress that their enemies are ruling over them. And as the book of the law is read, they're cut to the heart. They realise that the distance they've put between themselves and God over the generations is what's at the heart of their distress. And they stand in their places, verse 2, and confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors. There's clarity. They realise anew that the oppression they're facing is because they've turned away from the Lord. The constellation of our distress will be unique to each one of us. Yet behind it all is a distancing of ourselves from the Lord. Some of the things that will be on our hearts this morning will be perhaps the war in Ukraine, the refugee crisis, global warming. Perhaps we're wondering, will fuel prices ever come down? How long will it take to recover from COVID and its effects, physical, mental, spiritual? How long before our relationship difficulties are resolved? What did the Israelites do with their distress? Well, in our passage that we've just heard, they prayed. But they're not a perfect example. They didn't pray straight away. This is 100 years after the city was ransacked. They're not insta-perfect. Prayer wasn't necessarily their first instinct. They're in this mess because successive generations had turned away, walked away from the Lord. 
They'd had time to try the alternatives, every other way of dealing with their shame and disgrace. But nothing had worked. But when they hear the word of the Lord, they're brought back to their senses. Their illness is diagnosed. They've wandered far away from the covenant God who loves them and brought them into the land to enjoy it and to prosper in it. So what can we learn from Ezra's prayer for us this morning? Three things. Every day is a good day to start praying, number one. Number two, we don't have to be original. And number three, the better we know God, the stronger our prayers will be. So firstly, we learn that every day is a good day to start praying. That might sound really obvious to you. But others might think that to start praying when life takes a turn for the worse is disingenuous. I've heard it said, if you don't believe in God in the good times, then who are you? How can you turn to God in the bad times? And we might understand the logic. It might seem rude, for example, to push a friend away, only to get in touch with them when everything else falls to pieces. But this logic is faulty. It's based on the human assumption that God treats us as we deserve or that like us, he would be offended to be treated in that way. But I think that humility is actually a form of pride. It's an unwillingness to humble ourselves before God, the, the one, the only one who in our time of need can turn and hear and help us. Ezra teaches us as he prays this prayer, there's never a bad day to start praying because God is for us. He's for his people. He longs to hear our voice, to see us approach on the horizon as we begin our journey home to him. None of us are born speaking to God, so we've all got to start somewhere. And we see in this prayer as Ezra kind of rehearses the, the history, the story of God and his people, that it's actually in the good times that we're likely, most likely to fall away, to forget him, to enjoy the gifts and push the giver away. It might just be that, like us, like for Israel, it's when things begin and do fall to pieces that we realise what's missing. We see examples of this in the Gospels. In Luke's, uh, Luke's Gospel, we hear the account of the thief on the cross as he hangs there next to Jesus. In his own words, he's being justly punished. And yet... That day is the day that he begins a new relationship with God. He speaks, talks, prays to Jesus and is given a clean, fresh slate even then. Look at the younger son in Luke 15. He returns home from his father, ready to apologise for wishing him dead and squandering his inheritance. Does the father chastise him and turn him away? saying that he made his intentions clear, the son that is, that he walked away when things were going well. So how dare you expect me to welcome you back now you've nothing and nowhere else to go? No, he doesn't say that. That's the shock of Jesus' message, the shock of the Bible and its scandalous account of God and his grace as he comes to save us. So the first thing we learn is that Every day is a good day to start praying. 
It's always a good day to turn back to God, to turn and repent and confess how good he is, how far we've fallen short, and to ask for his mercy. Secondly, we learn that we don't have to be original. And I think this really takes the pressure off. I can read a wonderful, long, eloquent prayer like Ezra's and just feel inadequate. How am I supposed to pray prayers like that, especially when I'm down in the dumps? It can be hard enough to pray at all. But the good news is that with God, there's, there are no points for originality. He's looking not for originality, but for authenticity, for honesty. Humans look at the external, the facade, the presentation, but God looks inside. He sees our hearts. Ezra's secret is that his prayer is largely a tapestry of other people's. Compare verse 11. You hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. Compare that with Moses and Miriam's song in Exodus 15. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. They sank to the depths like a stone. When it comes to God, you're not disqualified for plagiarism. And as our hearts are unique, so as we cry out to the Lord, even if they're words of others, our heart's cry will be unique as it comes to him. When you submit an assignment for, uh, for maybe school, but certainly university, this was my experience last year, there was a digital plagiarism checker. You'd upload your file when you found the right place. Um, and uh, there'd be a nervous couple of minutes while the software did its thing and sort of scanned your work and compared it to the vast amount of known literature to see whether you tried to secretly smuggle in someone else's thesis, someone else's work. And even though you knew it was your own work, you'd sit there nervously on the edge of your seat just hoping this work you've been doing for the last few weeks wouldn't be disqualified for uh, a forgotten reference or a, a, the wrong style of footnote. It was always such a relief when the number came back, something like 17%, 22% of work recognised, you know, a good, a healthy amount of quotation, but not, not sort of anything dangerous. And a big tick to say that you'd, you'd successfully submitted your piece. Well, if Ezra had been in that position, if he'd been submitting this prayer for an assignment at theological college, I dare say he'd have been failed for plagiarism. But we don't have that headache in the kingdom. We don't have to nervously sit back once we've submitted a prayer to God and wonder if he'll accept it, whether he'll notice that we've just taken it lock, stock and barrel from Nehemiah 9. God longs for honesty and authenticity. And we see that in this prayer as Ezra confesses the sins of his people. Even Jesus used scripture in his prayers. He cried out in the words of Psalm 22 from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Another cry of distress, a prayer for help, and one that was answered mightily on the third day. You could take that prayer, you could take Ezra's prayer as inspiration for your own prayer life. 
when you're down in the dumps, when things aren't going to plan, don't beat yourself up for not knowing how to talk to God, not having a more mature or developed, more eloquent prayer life. There's no shame whatsoever in springboarding off a psalm or one of these three 999 prayers, Nehemiah 9, Daniel 9, or Ezra 9. When we're in great distress, the second thing Ezra teaches us is that we don't have to worry about being original. And the third thing that this prayer teaches us is that the better we know God, the more strong, the more inspired our prayers will be. Say you're in that position of great distress, maybe your house, your basement flat is flooded, or you've just been told that you need to be out of the landlord once you're gone. Or your you know, child's going through a difficult stage. Will it ever end? What do you do? Well, imagine, just imagine you were to pray. What do you say? What would you do? Well, in that vast reading, that vast prayer, I don't know if you spotted it, but if you boil it down to the petition, the request that's made, it's just this. Do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. See, we are slaves today. And Ezra could have prayed those one-liners. We can pray prayers like that. Arrow prayers, quick prayers. God, help. But think for a moment what the difference is between just a one-liner like that and a weighty prayer like Ezra's. Why is there so much preamble why does he waffle on and on and on? Why doesn't he just cut to the chase? Well, I put it to you that it's because he's building faith. Imagine if he'd got straight to it in that vast assembly. Lord, do not let this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. And now think of how that's different to those petitions coming at the end of that great rehearsal of God's story, his great goodness and kindness and his relentless patience and grace as the Israelites messed up again and again and again and he rescued them, delivered them time after time. The preamble in fact isn't irrelevant, it's not just buttering God up with compliments about how good he is. Ezra's rehearsing, declaring to God's glory and for the benefit of the multitude, how good, how kind, how compassionate God has been since he called Abraham and even before in creating this good planet. He's lamenting just how miserable, stubborn and arrogant they've been and how patient God has been. And that forms the backbone of the prayer. That is what it all comes to. Don't let all this suffering over the generations be as nothing. Please, Lord, as you've helped us before, help us now. Take notice of us. Rescue us once again. Those quickfire prayers that we can pray, that we can offer up to God, are great, but they, they rely on sort of what we've got at the back of our mind, our sort of subconscious knowledge of God. But if we take the time to actively call to mind what we know of him, the promises that we have in scripture, we can, we can remind each other. And having done so, we can pray those same prayers, but with great assurance, full of confidence. And we might even find ourselves praying bigger prayers, deeper prayers, 
more meaningful prayers, not just about the trivial things of the day about which God cares for sure, but about the deeper things of our heart, the, the longings that we find within us for our lives, for the lives of those we love, for the life of the church, for God's people in this nation and around the world. A gauge for where we're at when we come to pray is to try saying sovereign Lord or Jesus is Lord just by ourselves in private and seeing if we mean it or, or how much we mean it, how much conviction there is behind that. Let's follow Ezra's example and rehearse God's goodness, his character, his mighty deeds until we're able to say sovereign Lord with conviction and faith that flows into prayer. The better we know God, the more inspired, the stronger our prayers will be. From time to time, I find it useful to journal, to write down the way that the Lord has been good and kind to me or the distress that I'm in and the prayers that, that come with that. I find it really helpful to be able to go back and look through a sort of perhaps from a year before, the way that the Lord has answered those prayers has been kind. And that, that builds faith. That encourages us to, to keep praying, to pray, to go on praying. The Bible is full of accounts of God's mighty deeds, his personal encounters, his precious promises. And in this chapter alone, we're reminded that God is from everlasting to everlasting. His name is glorious. He alone is the Lord, that he made everything in the universe that everything that has life has been given life by him, that God is worthy of blessing and honour and praise, and that there are multitudes in heaven worshipping him right now. And that's just the first couple of verses. Then it gets personal. This God is also personal and relational and loving and self-giving. He chose one man, found his heart faithful, and made a covenant, promised himself to him. Now, Ezra's got a real head start in that he knows the scriptures intimately. But we've got an advantage on Ezra and Nehemiah, heroes of the faith as much as they are. We can know God in ultra high definition through the accounts we have of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And by God's spirit, we can know God in a whole new way. And we can inspire each other. When we lose our bearings, we can remind each other of God's great and precious promises, the truths we've learned about him and the love of God we've seen revealed in Christ, that God is good, that he's for us, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, that he makes all things work together for the good of those who love him, that he'll never leave us or forsake us, that as we seek his kingdom first, our Father in heaven will provide for all our needs, that he has good gifts for us, even his spirit. We're all able to remind and encourage and strengthen each other in the Lord. It's up to each of us to put ourselves in the company of those who will build us up and develop our knowledge of God. So the third thing we, we see is that the better we know God, the stronger our prayers will be. 
So what do we do when we're in great distress? Come back to God. Confess who he is, his goodness, his kindness, and the distance we've put between ourselves and him. Cry out for his mercy, knowing that we don't deserve his kindness, yet we can absolutely, full of confidence, cry out to him, knowing it's his heart and his desire to hear us and to help us. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, you know the cry of our hearts this morning. May we have the audacity, the boldness to bring those cries before you. Help us to be vulnerable, to be real before you, knowing that in Christ Jesus you love us and that you are entirely for us. Amen.